I do think the only thing that I've ever seen that has moved the needle in self-awareness is creating permission and safeness for people around you that you love to tell you the truth of what they think of you. Absolutely. Welcome to Evolve Leadership, the arena where high achieving leaders are challenged to redefine their limits. My name is Angus Nelson. I grew up in the United States and I now live in Lisbon, Portugal. I'm an executive coach and I've spent my career advising and training leaders from startups to Fortune 500 companies. And here's what I've learned. An old, ineffective leadership framework will always keep you on a hamster wheel, consumed with work-life balance, burnout, and stress. Here on the show, each week we'll help you rethink the path to achievement. We'll help you discover new principles, new philosophies to the modern leader. Look, the world is relentlessly changing, demanding a new era of leaders. It's time to redefine your limits. So enter the arena, my friend. It's time to evolve. Welcome to the Evolve Leadership Show. Angus, we have crossed a major milestone in the history of the show. Really have. It's crazy. We recognized that we had gotten to 80,000 downloads of the show. <laughs> exactly, that's right? A big, like, that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. And it's not like, you know, some of my friends who are in the podcast world who've done millions of downloads, blah, 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 blah. Like, I don't care. I mean, maybe one day we'll hit a million. Cool, cool, cool. But what I want to celebrate is when I started, like nobody knew nothing about whatever I was putting my hand to. And to the thought that 80,000 people have taken time to listen to this show, to listen to these interviews. It's kind of mind boggling. I mean, that's like a, yeah. like I'm in Portugal, right? That's like a, that's like a football stadium, you know, 80,000 people. That's like yeah. a college American football stadium. Like yeah. it's, it's a lot of people. It is a big deal. And there's something about pausing, like take the analogy of climbing a mountain, especially as high achievers, right? We want to climb and get to the top. And so we're always seeing like that book, The Gap in the Gain, we're always seeing the gap where we're not there. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. But there's something about hiking up a trail. I was at the Cocoa Head Trail here in Honolulu, and you, you st I started going up, and it's just straight up. I mean, it's not zigzagging across. It's straight, it's straight uphill. And halfway through, I just had this moment where I had to pause because it was just so hard. But you turn around. And the view from where I was already at was magical. And sometimes we need, especially as high performers, to take a pause, right? And celebrate the win, celebrate where we are, celebrate where we've accomplished, not just what we haven't accomplished yet. Am I right? For sure. And even in our mastermind, like what do we do on Marco Polo? We jump on on Wednesday. We're like, it's Wednesday. Like yeah. share your wins. And that's the treat. That's the celebration is we're actually going to go back in time and pull some excerpts of some of our favorite interviews that we've done and invite you into like those moments. And for me, I know I was there, but I didn't know what I know now. I didn't realize like who I was interviewing back then. And some of them have become way more well-known <laughs> than I ever thought, you know, like, 
dang, that's amazing. And here I was able to have these conversations. Yeah, Angus, we have Gary Vaynerchuk. We have Ryan Holiday. Jen Shinchiro was on the show. Uh, mm-hmm. John Henry, Carol Roth, Steve Cadigan from LinkedIn, uh, Anne Handley, and Brian Tracy, one of the godfathers of leadership. And you interviewed each one of these people. And I'm fired up to dive into those interviews and hear some of the golden nuggets that they presented. And the first one I know as a friend of yours is Gary Vanerchuk, and he has had a journey even since this show. But talk about your interview with Gary. The actual interview I said to his like handlers, you know, getting into the show, I said, well, I want to talk about two particular things. One is family. That's your most important value that you hold. And number two is chapter 17 of your book, Ask Gary V, where you talk about self-awareness. You said, this is the only chapter you should read twice. And so when we dived into the interview, we talked about, you know, how he works with his kids and the way that he parents his kids around meritocracy and how they have to mm. earn, you know, a lot of their success in the same way that he teaches and, and helps people with building self-esteem as he likes to call it, outrageous self-esteem. Yeah. And then when, of course, when we talked about the self-awareness part, that was so awesome to have that opportunity. And so now like, if you don't know who Gary Vee is, like, I don't know what rock you've crawled under, but like, he's kind of a big deal. And uh, to have the opportunity that we got to speak with him, um, I'm really excited for you to hear this excerpt with him right now. I'm, I'm super, super excited to be on with you, brother. I want to talk to you about two things, and uh, we'll bleed right into that today. And they're not the normal things that people talk to uh, Gary about. I want to talk about family and self-awareness. Let's do it. You have two kids, Misha, and then, of course, your son, Xander. So for you, what are the ways that when you are with your kids that you are super intentional about modeling and teaching the values that you want them to have as adults? Uh, First and foremost, meritocracy and no eighth place trophies. So the biggest thing so far that I've been pounding is I will never let Xander score a basket on me. Ever. I never let them win a single race. I'm very into the whole, um, let's not clap up coming in 19th place out of 19. Like very, very concerned about America's softness on this issue. And I'm definitely teaching my kids to go the other way. Um, so that's been big. The closely followed by if you ever think that not being kind to everybody, regardless of who they are, whether they're a babysitter or the doorman or your teacher or a fellow classmate or the woman across the street or the guy you bought the candy from or your mom, I will punch you in the face. (laughs) And you say that to your seven-year-old. I love that. Yep. I sure do. I mean, obviously not exactly like that, but, but, and I'm going to caveat that by saying I'm joking a little bit because I don't want everybody to go to Twitter and bash me for this, but I will tell you this. I'm a little old school and, and the thing that really matters to me the most is that my children are kind and understand that there are winners and losers. That's what actually happens in life. And those two things matter a lot. And that's been the majority of what I've been spending time in. I don't care if they eat vegetables. I don't care if they're great in multiplication. I'm not worried if they're spending too much time on the iPad. Um, I'm worried about those two core things. And then, and then probably actually ground zero. Actually, this is true. Above that, 
though it's a little early for me to figure out exactly how I want to do it, which is why I didn't start with it. What will trump those two things and is now in the love that we're giving them and compliments on things that merit compliments is I want them to have enormous self-esteem. I mean, outrageous levels of self-esteem, ungodly levels of self-esteem. Perfect segue. So for you in uh, chapter 17 of your book, uh, Ask Gary V, you had this chapter to recommend that it's the only chapter that someone should read twice. And in it, you stated that if you could sell a formula made up of gratitude, empathy, and self-awareness, it would be your billion-dollar coconut water idea. Can you please explain why those are such critical components? You and I have been around each other now a long, long time. If you're grateful, you're happy almost every day. (laughs) You know, uh, if you're empathetic, you can basically sell and be happy every day to people. Uh, You know, meaning... um, you know, if you understand what the other person is thinking or feeling, if you're a good person, um, uh, you can deliver those things that they need. And if you're a salesperson, you can understand what people will be buying and things of that nature. I just think it's a very, very good, uh, uh, trait. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, self-awareness boy, you know, when you know who you are, everything changes. When you know who you are, everything changes. Um, and especially if you're happy with yourself, right? Especially if you can get into that place of, of being happy with what you are. And I think once you know who you are and can settle into accepting who you are, mm-hmm. the world opens up. So on that same token, how does someone become self-aware? I don't know. Well, you were really confident in a couple of your videos. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, you know, I do think the only thing that I've ever seen that has moved the needle in self-awareness is creating permission and safeness for people around you that you love to tell you the truth of what they think of you. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, for sure. I'm so happy with my mental status that I don't want to meditate. I don't want to take those tests. I want to do exactly what's been working for me, which is it's intuitive. It works for me. I've been mentally happy my whole life. I'm very grateful for that. I, I know it doesn't work for everybody. I don't, I, again, in the same way, I won't judge someone's marriage. For me, I know what works. It's part of my self-awareness, which is don't with the system, right? It's working and keep it pure and keep it the way it is. And, and instead of worrying about going any further down the path with what I'm dealing with, see how I can provide value to others. Man, I love Gary V. Angus. Such a good dude. Speaking of good dudes, the next one we have here is Ryan Holiday, and you're interviewing him about his book, The Ego is the Enemy. Yeah, and he's released a a couple of books since then. Uh, Not only that, but he opened a bookstore down in uh, a small town, uh, Bastrop, uh, Texas. What I loved about, A, this book, is amazing um, to me. It's it's a classic. I have it like dog-eared and everything else, uh, scribbled, highlighted, whatever. And I've kind of took him through his paces because at the end of the show, he like puts his hand or his head in his hands. He's like, "Oh my gosh, I'm exhausted. That was such a good interview." And for me, that was like the highest compliment. And so right. in that uh, interview, he talks about humility and, of course, you know, fighting your ego. But how ironically you can feel bad about yourself when you start to recognize some of these elements in your egos, some of those elements of shame, right? 
Mm-hmm. And he talks about how fame can't fix what's broken, which I thought was really amazing because he is another one of those guys who since our interview has become quite a big deal. Um, and so this interview is one of my proud moments as an interviewer uh, to be able to take someone into uh, really diving deep into more than just their material, but just their heart behind all of it. So let's jump into that interview right now. First of all, we don't talk about things like this. Sure. You're you're in taboo territory. Very few people would want to talk about transparency, vulnerability, humility, and some of the principles in this book. Can you share with us, how did this all come about? There's a quote I have in the book from from Reverend Sam Wells, who was talking about how we, we all want to do these great things, and we want to be humble. The problem is we don't think that humility can get us to where we want to go. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to dispute that entirely, right? I, I wanted to make it clear that, in fact, people who are very accomplished and have done amazing things, um, not only are humble, but they were successful precisely because of that humility and that self-awareness and, and the, the war they fought against their ego. So it's like, how does one do ambitious things without being an ambitious person, sort of using both sort of connotations of that word? I think that's incredibly difficult. How does one, how does one do things that are special, but not feel like they're special and better than everyone else? Or how is one the best at what they do? without walking around like they're better than everyone else. Not only is that tough, but that's particularly impressive when you see it. And so I I wanted to focus on people who've done extraordinary things, but acted like ordinary people. I, I just, I, I love that. There's a quote I have from Napoleon. I think he's saying like, great men have sought happiness and found fame. And so it's like, we, we sort of think like, hey, if I do this, if I accomplish this, if I win this, or if I make this, then I will be happy and find meaning. Mm. And that doesn't usually, as someone who's done, you know, not incredible things, but I've, I've done a thing or two, you tend to find that it, it it's never what you expect mm-hmm. because it's outside you. These things, uh, there's a quote from Marcus Rudis, he's saying, things can't touch the soul. And so he means like, if you feel bad about yourself, Having a billion dollars in the bank is not going to change how you feel about yourself because you're still going to feel crappy. You're still going to feel inferior. You're still going to feel worthless, whatever it is. Um, and it's the same. It's the same with like, hey, I'll be happy as soon as I get this off my plate or, hey, I'll be less stressed as soon as I finish this or whatever. It never happens. And it's like, no, you, ne- you never actually get the time, right? It just disappears into the same, into the same life that you already had. And so I, I think it's the same thing with accomplishments, which is why, you know, oftentimes people are incredibly motivated to do things because they feel so terrible inside. Mm-hmm. And so in a weird way, the worse you feel, the w- more motivated you are to do extraordinary things. And then ironically or paradoxically, the more disappointing those incredible things turn out to be. Mm-hmm. I I always say that, you know, it's the difference between living in the past and living in, in the future. Neither one of them fix today. 
Sure. You know, in totally. the past, it's either we wish it was, you know, Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite and he could yeah. throw that football a quarter mile. You remember that? It was the good old days, right? Or, you know, like my own story where I have elements of shame or guilt or, you know, embarrassment. And, and if I allow those things to take root, I'll only recreate the same cycles of sabotage. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I think, you know, if I was to sum up this book, it's about the way in which our ego sabotages us, mm -hmm. even though ironically it might first propel us to succeed. It then seeks to undermine that very success. And what, who was the, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Howard Hughes. Yes. And you tell the story about one of his assistants or something of that nature saying, Oh, you led such a great life. And, and he goes on to say, after you had my life for a week, you'd want to give it back. Yeah, he's saying, like, look, you think that it's so awesome for me, but you really have no idea. And I, look, that's that's jived with my own experiences, you know, sort of being called to meet with some of these people you find or, or spending lots of time with them. You find, man, I wouldn't trade places with them for all the money in the world. And sometimes they have mm -hmm. it. You know, sometimes they do have all the money in the world. And you realize that it can't it can't fix what's broken. Only only the person can. So there's, uh, you know, the, the compensation, right? So so the guy who drives the big truck, you know, he drives by. Sure. And, and I had this joke with my buddies when we grew up. We'd always say, hey, sorry about your penis. Right. You know, like, it's kind of the similar yeah. thing. I know that's a, kind of a stretch, but it's like sure. people who have frailty, insecurity, fear, will rise to compensate over that through some kind of a bigness or... Yes what have you. Ugh. I hate yeah. that stuff. I, and we were saying right before the call, like I work in tech, I yeah. know influencers, thought leaders, whatever that I love them. I, I love them as people. Um, they're charming, they're funny, but I watch their life and watch some of the choices they make. And I'm like, you are destroying your inside and you don't even know it. I think, I think that's exactly right. And, and look, that's a great Coming to that realization is a natural cure for jealousy. I was writing about this recently. It's like you have to realize that you can't have oftentimes you can't have one without the other. So it's that willingness to inflict destruction on oneself that also helps them accomplish these things. And so when you feel it's like when you feel jealousy or envy towards someone, you have to look at the whole picture. You can't mm. just want their financial success or their reputational accomplishments or their, you know, position of influence, you have to say, okay, what did they trade to get this? What, mm -hmm. what was, is that a, is that full bargain worth it to me? And usually it's not. Sometimes it is. And that's someone to admire and to look up, up to and emulate, but it's almost, it almost never is. All right, Angus, the next one is from a book that has radically changed my life. You are a badass at making money by Jen Shinchiro. And I love her personality, and but I love how real she is about uncovering our weird stories about money and actually making the pursuit of money a good thing because of all the good we could do in the world with it. And I love your conversation with her. Yeah, me too, dude. That that was one of my favorite conversations in terms of just, I wasn't interrogating her. I was being really curious. Whereas like Ryan, 
a holiday, I was like, I really want to know, like, what about this ego? It was like really like hardcore. I was like a little, little much, but with Jen, it was like fascinating. And for me, I struggle with money stories as part of my life. And so it was such a, a really good experience to like hear from her mouth, from her heart, how she expresses. And if you have any stories about money in your life, about what you're worth, what your value, uh, what you came from. Oh my God, you're going to love this interview. And so let's jump into that right now. Why do we have such a hang up about money? Because we live in a world that is so freaky deaky about it. We lived in a very fear-based society and we have created this filth factor around money where the mere sentence, I love money, is like a gross statement. Money is a for, is like a dirty word. And so we have to deprogram ourselves from that and unhook ourselves from those beliefs if we really want to start raking it in. Can you share some yeah. of the things that money makes possible? Oh, yeah. I mean, and the thing is, you know, we literally use it every single day of our lives. So it just blows my mind that we make it such a filthy, bad thing. So it's in, you know, the water that is running through our faucets. It's in the lights we turn on in our house. It's in the food. It's in the clothes we wear. It's in the cars we drive. It's everywhere. And so healing your relationship with money is one of the most important things you can do. Honestly, as a human being on planet Earth existing in our society, you have to have money. And not just to survive, but to really thrive. And so I spent a lot of time in my book getting people aware and conscious of their limiting beliefs, you know, like money is the root of all evil and rich people, you'll know, kill the rich and um, that rich bastard and money doesn't grow on trees and you have to work really hard and do things that are not fun to make money. We have so many negative beliefs around it. And when you get out of being on autopilot and start questioning these beliefs, you realize, you know, hey, that's not necessarily true, nor is it helping me. <laughs> Did you experience some of that negative programming about how your parents interacted with one another around money? Or was it somebody close to you or a teacher or a coach? What, what was it that influenced you? I... Honestly, the the one really big one that I discovered um, after I started doing a lot of work, um, you know, reading all the self-help books and going to the money-making seminars, I, I realized that I had a big thing around believing that money was for other people, not for me, mm. that people with mansions and yachts and private jets were almost like a different species. Basically, they were grown-ups and I was forever a 17-year-old, you know person living in a garage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that I, I just could never really become that much of a grown up. I truly believed in my heart that it wasn't there for me the way it was for them. Mm -hmm. You know, that I couldn't make it like that. But the one the you know, so I, I sort of figured out all those things that were going on with me around money. Uh, but I had one that was very deeply embedded that was a hum dinger when I realized it. And it was that uh, my dad used to give me money to, to show me he loved me like it was his way of taking care of me. And you know, he'd like hand me a 20 or write me a check for a hundred bucks or whatever. And, and I realized that in my subconscious, I felt like if I got really rich and successful, my dad wouldn't be able to show me his love anymore. And it would be like stabbing him in the heart. Mm. And I realized that when I made one of my biggest leaps into the unknown financially hiring a coach for just an insane amount of money at the time. And it brought that up full center. And I was like, Oh, 
Hello, limiting yeah. belief. You said in your book where you talk about about your beliefs that drive the bus, your thoughts are your tour guide, your words are the assistant to your thoughts and beliefs, your emotions are the fuel, and your actions build the road. Do you want to speak to that for us? Yeah, it's really all connected. And um, what happens is that sometimes we have part of the equation moving in the right direction and part of the equation is not. So if you're taking all the actions that you think you need to be taking to change your life and make money, but your thoughts are like, you know, your subconscious thoughts and your beliefs are like, and if I make money, all my friends are going to think I'm hoity-toity and too cool for school and better than them and I'm going to be abandoned and I'm going to have no friends. You're not, you know, you're not going to get far. So mm. it's really about having everything in alignment and, um, you know, the way that you speak about yourself and the way that you think about yourself and how you think about money and all that stuff. We think that um, transforming our lives is going to be a big pain in the ass and really hard. And it's like really upgrading your thoughts, making better choices and taking scary risks. Okay. It's, it's scary, but it's not necessarily hard. The feeling of fear is very similar to the feeling of excitement and that just like, Oh man, here we go. Right. It's almost indistinguishable. And that's when you know you're in the pocket you want to be scared because it means you're stepping outside of your comfort zone and you don't want to be scared and doing stuff that you hate and that you're not, you know, that's not exciting to you. If it's leading in the direction of your goal and you're terrified, that's what you're looking for. So for me, I'm still growing. I'm still doing stuff that scares me. I'm still, you know, making changes in my life. And I always know that if it's something I really kind of don't want to do because I'm freaking terrified <laughs> that mm -hmm. I, then I focus more on the desire for the outcome than I do on all of the many things that I'm terrified are going to happen. Yeah. And I also one of the, this is a great thing. This actually helped me a lot with writing this book, especially in the early days when I was petrified of just sucking, uh, visualizing yourself on the other side already. I would wake up mm -hmm. every morning and imagine being on this podcast, like talking about the book that I've already written really, and not just visualizing it, but feeling yourself in that new space and that excitement and that feeling of accomplishment and then sitting down and doing the work as opposed to waking up being like, holy crap, what am I going to do? I'm going to get slammed by the critics. Like, how is that helpful? Jen, is there any one last thing you want to leave with us? Yeah. Remember that this is your one and only shot at being the you that is you on planet earth and it's not to be wasted so just go for it as big and bad as you want i mean what do you have to lose seriously we're on a planet in outer space <laughs> it's all ridiculous so go for it All right, next we get to hear from a young entrepreneur. At the time, John Henry was 23 and disrupting yeah. all these spaces. I love this interview uh, with John Henry, Angus. Yeah, it, he and I met. Uh, I was uh, hosting a conference in Aruba, and he was one of the speakers. We spent a couple of late nights in the pool and having some cocktails and some cigars, and I uh, just really enjoyed the energy with this guy. And we followed that up uh, a couple of years later with an interview. And 
He's since gone and opened Loop, which is this insurance company. Like he's done some really amazing things. But on this interview, you get to hear a story, how he came from parents who had uh, nothing from the Dominican Republic. And you get to hear a story about resilience and perseverance and how he started as someone who was, you know, checking the doors at an apartment complex as just the bellman. And then growing that into doing um, all of the laundry and from the laundry of those buildings into then doing it for uh, Hollywood would come in and, and do all these, uh, you know, yeah. on location um, filmings in New York City. And he became the guy that would launder all their stuff and he would take a percentage off of it. And he built up this whole thing, sold it off and then started some other companies, got into real estate and he's still kicking ass doing some amazing things. John Henry is amazing. I cannot wait for you to hear him right now. I am here with John Henry. How are you, John? <laughs> I'm all right, man. Good to be on here. So I want to talk about what you're up to and, and what you've learned along the way. And if you could just kind of succinctly kind of tell your story, how you got into all this. Let's see, originally from the city, but grew up in Florida. I came back to the city in my adult life uh, at the age of 18 to pursue my first love, which was jazz guitar. So I came here with a vengeance, going to be the best musician in the world. I was working as a doorman to kind of help make ends meet. And um, and then I something strange happened. And, uh, you know, I took quite a bit of pride into being a doorman. And there I met a resident through that kind of attitude and that spirit that I brought to work every day, who offered me a business opportunity. Um, and, uh, you know, in a nutshell, he made his money with dry cleaners. So he said, hey, look, you know, you can use my facility um, and I'll give you uh, below market rates as if you were bringing me wholesale volume. So I'll give you wholesale rates. I mean, you just convince people to give you their clothes. So I did that and went through quite a bit of twists and turns and somehow ended up kind of dominating the film and the television industry. Um, so we did all the wardrobe for big TV shows like Law and & Order and Boardwalk Empire, a lot of HBO accounts. Um, did well with it. Did that for two, three years. Ended up selling the company in December 2014. Uh, and then from there, um, started an accelerator as a nonprofit very interesting social impact model where we didn't give cash to the companies, but we put them through a program. And in exchange, we didn't take equity, but we asked that the companies commit to stay in Harlem. So it was really fascinating and did a lot for the neighborhood, the morale, the energy. And so that, because we did a good job of it over the course of the last year, uh, is enabling us now to go out there and raise what will be effectively Harlem's first venture capital fund. So that's my story in two minutes. All right. So do you have yourself, you know, there's one thing, one thing to have the hustle, but do you have some personal or professional development practices that you maintain and recommend? Yes, that one's quite easy for me. Um, there are some that I do uh, quite consistently that have helped me along. The, the practice that uh, I've really leaned into is meditation. Met, like actually meditating. So I'll sit down, you know, in quiet. Um, you know, I started at 15 minutes at a time and then you go 20 and you go 30 minutes. I think in a, in a nutshell, what I try to do is I just try and feel emotions that make me feel good. So for instance, gratitude, like it feels so good when you're grateful for something. 
to trust or to have faith or like those good emotions. Um, I think there's so much to be said about how, how you're feeling. And so for me, it's become a very, and this is something that I've developed over the last couple of years, like intentionally, consciously. For me, I try to, as often as I can, check in with how I'm feeling. And if I'm feeling like sometimes I think I'm feeling great and I'll tell people I'm feeling great. But then as I do like what I call an emotional audit, it's just something I came up with. But um, as I inquire, I'm like, OK, I'm supposed to be feeling good, but actually I feel anxious. Why am I feeling anxious? Oh, that's because I'm running late. Uh, and what am I afraid of happening? Like, you know, and then I and then I may trace the source of it. And once I dig like 10 levels deep and think, oh, f- I'm afraid of failing or I'm afraid of X, Y, Z. So anyways meditating has really allowed me to be really, really closely in tune with how I'm feeling at all the, t- all the time. Um, and that's not to try and that's not to say that I try and put myself in a happy place all the time, although I do. But I think the more important thing uh, is to just be aware of how you're feeling. Let me just pause for a second to say this. There is one trait that you will find in every successful leader, no matter their industry, no matter their role. And that trait is action. And we want to inspire ambitious leaders like you to bet on yourself and take action on those audacious goals that you see in your heart. That's why we created our 90 day accelerator. It's a results driven battle tested framework designed specifically for high performing leaders like you to get unstuck and propel you towards your goals. And in just 90 days, you won't even recognize the person you used to be. To be a part of this elite community, go to evolveleadership.org. Now, back to the show. All right, Angus, the next guest we had on the show was a New York Times bestseller, and in a lot of top news, and that is Carol Roth. Yeah, what's beautiful is she was not yet into the New York Times bestseller. Now she is. In fact, her recent book she just released uh, hit the, the top of uh, New York Times. And mm. furthermore, like we met back when I was in the dad influencer space. I was a dad blogger. We're talking like circa 2008, 2009, 2010, yeah. somewhere in that vicinity. And her career had her on CNN and Fox and CNNBC and all these different shows. She became a really great, powerful, like talking head and has some really great perspective for entrepreneurs. So if you own your own company, if you're running your own company, you're going to want to hear this interview right now. How in the world are you? I am freaking amazing, Angus. Uh, I'm excited to be here with you. You're a longtime buddy of mine, and uh, it's been far too long since we've connected. So I am incredibly excited to be here. Yeah, and your background was in investments and, and capital and VC world. And can you kind of just flesh that out just a Yes. So, um, so when I came out of investment banking and then started my own investment banking firm, it was in this world. Here I was, you know, I made vice president of an investment bank by age 25, multimillionaire, you know, all these things from the outside. People are like, oh my God, she's just killing it. And I was just incredibly depressed. And I was incredibly depressed because I knew I was not working 
at a level that I should be, that I could be doing more, giving back more. And, and it just wasn't working for me. But for the life of me, I could not figure out what it was that I should be doing. So I decided the best way, since I could not figure it out, that I needed to, to do things that were completely different than what my brain told me I should and shouldn't do. So one of the things my brain would have shot down was to get a coach. And so that's exactly what I did. So I went out and I found a business coach. I interviewed a bunch of different people. I found the one that I thought was best suited for me. And then all of these little wonderful little empathy tools like doing the strengths finder came from working with this business coach who, by the way, I still continue to work with. I say some people have a therapist. I have a, a business coach. And you know, for me, he pushed me into doing these things that I just thought were completely stupid, but mm. that, you know, I felt like, well, yeah, I may think they're stupid, but obviously what I'm doing is not working. So I have to be willing to try these other things to at least go, okay, you know, I, I explored all possibilities. And that was really what opened me up to different possibilities, just doing things that I thought were completely silly and stupid. And, you know, what's amazing is the, the things that have sprung out of doing that, things like uh, my book marketing um, director, Elizabeth Marshall, I met her by doing a bunch of silly, stupid things that, you know, I would have never done otherwise. And again, they're not actually silly and stupid. My brain just told me they were silly and stupid. And, you know, she's the one that really helped me um, make my book, The Entrepreneur Equation, a success. So mm -hmm. opening myself up to being willing to just do stuff that my brain um, initially shut down, I think, uh, is what gave me that um, that extra empathy and made me more cuddly than I was prior. <laughs> I love that. Like, what are some of the more common short-sighted mistakes that uh, people make as they're coming to pitch or as they're coming to plan? So I think the, the first challenge is I, I have something, um, and I know you and I have talked about this offline a little bit, but I've got something called the rule of three in business, which everything is three times longer, three times as expensive and three times more difficult than it could be and should be. And so when people are planning for their business, they often don't realize how long something that really shouldn't take that long is going to take. And that factor of three really screws people up because one, they give up. You know, they're trying to pursue something with vigor to make it happen immediately. And then when it doesn't, they kind of take their foot off the gas instead of continuing to do that and, and being patient. And then they often don't, from a financial standpoint, plan for that as well. So that means not only raising the capital to start the business, but to keep it operating through these very rocky times for three years and having enough money to live on. So, you know, setting yourself up financially um, ends up being an issue for people. And then you have to make a bad decision. You know, do I continue trying to make this happen or do I pay my rent or my mortgage? And, and that's a lose-lose proposition when you have to make those kinds of decisions. So I think not having those realistic expectations going in um, you know, really sets people up to, to struggle. That's fantastic. And the, I think the last piece that we haven't talked about um, is just the, the failure aspect. And I think you're, you're tapping into that is, <laughs> is not being afraid to fail. And when yeah. you do fail to learn from it, that fail, failure is not an end. 
if you are going to be successful, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, if you're going to be an intrapreneur, if you're going to do anything, you have to take some level of risk, hopefully educated risk. But if, you, if you're going to take risk, it is not going to work out some of the time. And that is okay. That is part of the process. And it's something that needs to be embraced. Now, you need to learn to fail in the, the correct way, which I always say is, is failing quickly, failing cheaply, and never failing the same way twice. Um, because you don't want to tie up all of your money pursuing something that you know doesn't work out and bankrupts you. You don't want to you know, spend ten years pursuing you know the dream and then have it all fall apart. You don't want to um, you know keep doing the same thing over and over and never learn. So I think that there there is this nice flow to being able to do it correctly. You just have to just take baby steps and try it on on these small things and and do it in a way that that's not going to damage you, you know, financially and psychologically forever. All right, Angus, the next one is one of my favorites. We interview Steve Cadigan, who was the head of LinkedIn HR when it started blowing up and, and going really big. And what I love about it is how raw and real he is about hitting the jackpot of success and yet how he wrestled through some of the personal struggles that came with that and has since been able to be resilient and step into a new level of really speaking to the future of work. 100%. And he was part of us transitioning into this new brand. So he's actually a Mm -hmm. relatively uh, recent one of our interviews. But to your point, Man, when you have success, you think, oh, I've arrived. This is amazing. (laughs) And it's not to say that it's not. He he even will tell you, like, there were so many things that were made available to him and the money he was able to make, the esteem that he gained from that, for sure, awesome. And with that, required of him a lot. And for him to share what he shared was so inspiring. And let you know that if you're a leader who is going through the stuff, that you're, you're churning through perseverance, you're going through that place of tenacity, you're going through that place of, you know, what could be the valley of your career while you're experiencing great success, know that you're not alone. And I loved not only what he shared, but in the spirit that he shared it. So much generosity, so much kindness, so much inspiration to be found. So let's jump into our interview with Steve Cadigan. What are some of the things you've had to, you know, press through to be this guy? Sure. Well, let me give a little more context. And I didn't decide to leave LinkedIn. I showed up one day and I told my boss, I think I'm done. And it just came out of my mouth. Like I hadn't a plan. I was like, I'm not going to do this. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. Don't feel sorry for me. I had more, I made more money than LeBron James has ever made in his best year because of LinkedIn share price. Like I'm doing just fine. But after a while, when you look at that bank account and you say, I'm in the best job in my profession, top of the mountain. I've got more financial security. If my parents knew how much I'd made, they, their heads would explode. Why am I doing this? So I just showed up one day and said, I'm out. And my boss like, what? He goes, uh, what? You know, he tried to talk me into staying in lots of different kinds of roles. I said, no, I, this is hard for me. I'm not going to be the hanger on executive who's sucking off the corporate. No, I'm out. And, um, and you can't have someone in human resources unless they're fully committed to the, the plan. So I left. My wife at the time was like, what? <laughs> I'm like, yep, I'm done. And then probably nine months after I left, my twins were walking on the sidewalk 
uh, with our the babysitter at the time, and they just bought a pumpkin carving kit. And an old 95 year old man drove onto the sidewalk and smashed my t- my twins against the wall. Uh, and one of the boys uh, t- had his arm snap in two. It's okay now. The other one took it full on and was in the hospital in the ICU for months. We didn't know if he was going to make it, and he wound up making it through. Just really devastating. Uh, here I am, you know, top of the mountain. Oh yeah, you know, I crushed it. And now I can see my marriage is pretty much, you know, ending. And now my kids are almost, you know, killed. And here I am sort of like, you know, whoa, I wasn't ready for that. This is once on how I envisioned the, you know, get to the top of the mountain. And um, now I'm sort of, you know, I'm 50 at the time. Like I got to start over, you know, I got to rebuild my life. And kids were um, like six, the twins were six. And my older was nine at the time. And my parents were divorced. And I'm just like, man, this is not how I wanted the script to go. And I, you know, I'm sad that the marriage ended, but I needed, it needed to end. And I was much responsible as, as anyone for, for, for that not working out. And so that was just a serious dark moment for me, you know, and while all that's happening, uh, fortunately for me, my phone starts ringing and all these people that I hadn't talked to in years, cause I'd been so busy said, let's get together. And so over the next year or so, as I'm trying to get on my feet and go through this divorce, I start having the market tell me that there's a big need for what I can do. And then people started saying, would you come talk to my company? Would you talk to our leaders? Would you talk to our investors? Would you talk to our employees? And I started to experience in all those different venues, Angus, like when my heart would uh, race and get excited and when I would get really depressed, you know, and it was working with the big companies, depressed, working with the hyper growth, like earlier stage, super excited. And so that's when I started to say, well, let me sort of pivot my time over there. Uh, meanwhile, um, you know, coached my boys to multiple basketball championships in the junior league here, which I love some baseball championships and started to really come alive as a coach, which I love. And once my kids finish college, I'm probably going to approach some local high schools here and see if I could coach some JV or varsity basketball, which I just love. So that helped me you know, that time really sort of shook me to my core, stripped me down to raw studs. But here, here's a really interesting thing and in, in, um, is that that whole experience with my sons, the accident, has fueled a big part of how I deliver what I deliver now when I, when I give a talk around the changing biology of work, using the metaphor that the doctors told me about my son is when a car impacts a body for an extended period of time, in this case, 15 minutes, the organs fail to remember how to work together. Whereas if they just been hit on the street and they bounced off the car, the organs would have figured out how to get back together, most likely. But because it was pinned for a long period of time, like we were pinned in work for a long period of time with COVID, like those normal patterns that we had in our life just kind of dissolved. And so, you know, I've been able to, with some help of some friends, um, really start thinking about my stories happened for a reason and it's helped inform my work story a little bit. And so um, that sort of a little bit of, you know, a circle of life uh, moment, if you will. Dude, I just wanted to like come across the screen and give you a hug and share my bourbon with you. Man, I love that interview. I love how Steve was just real and open. And I think a lot of us as leaders uh, can really learn from him stepping into that and and being vulnerable and sharing with us. So I'm really proud of Steve for doing that, that uh, for sharing with us. Uh, the next interview we have, Angus, is Anne Hanley, and she is a big marketing influencer. Tell us about that interview with Anne. 
You know, it was great because it was sparked by a post. Uh, she has a big audience and, um, you know, has done very well for herself and writing her books and speaking on all sorts of stages. But one of the things she mentioned was about imposter syndrome. It was like, oh my gosh, you're, you're Anne Hanley. What do you mean you have imposter syndrome? Are you kidding me? <laughs> so I reached out to her and I was like, hey, uh, you want to have a conversation around imposter syndrome? She's like, absolutely. And that's pretty much how she said it too. And so on the show, not only do you get to experience Anna Handley and her incredible personality, but she even says in here, and I don't want to like give a spoiler, but I will tell you, she's like, everybody's faking it. Like nobody is excluded from getting these certain levels of success and then questioning, like, do I have what it takes? And it was so refreshing and so powerful in what she shared. I'm really excited for you to hear from Anne Handley. What we're talking about today is this whole element of imposter syndrome. You posted this little question on there that said, so who doesn't feel like they have imposter syndrome? And then in parentheses, you said, or hasn't at some point. That became 170 some odd likes and a whole stream of comments, many from some of the most unlikely of people. Did that at all surprise you? Um. Yes and no. I mean, I posted that because, you know, I had seen a, a piece that ran on, I think it was on BuzzFeed, um, that talked about imposter syndrome. It was, you know, something like 13 things that everybody with imposter syndrome understands. And it was surprising to me the number of people who I think of as accomplished, you know, people who have written books, people who, you know, speak publicly, stand on stage in front of, you know, a thousand people. Um, and they were sharing that on their Facebook page, you know, these people who are friends of mine. And that just blew me away. And I was like, wow, these people feel that, you know, yeah. people who from the outside look incredibly accomplished. They don't look like people who are anywhere close to what we might think of as an imposter. You know, so that was the question. Well, if they feel it, who doesn't have it? You know, so that's kind of where that whole thing came from. Right. And so I, I love that whole topic because I definitely have experienced it. So I was like, awesome. This sounds like a great topic to bring on the show. So obviously I reached out to you and, you know, whenever, you know, someone talks about the whole element of imposter syndrome or anything like this, that's along the lines of deep emotional stuff. It's like, woohoo, fear, shame, anxiety, yay, <laughs> transparency and vulnerability. Not necessarily the, the like life of the party kind of conversation. And yet, I think we all have some sort of connection with it. So my whole imposter syndrome thing really came much later in life where, you know, I had written a book um, with my good friend Cece Chapman, Content Rules, and then, um, and then five years later came out with Everybody Writes. But it was really for when, when I wrote Content Rules and found myself, you know, having to be out there because... You know, I couldn't just write a book and, and then, you know, quietly expect it to sell, of course. You know, a big piece of being an author is suddenly you find yourself yeah. thrust into sales. And so I really had to be out there. I had to speak. I had to write. I had to sort of put yourself out there or put myself out there, um, which I think is true of any creative person or anybody who has any ideas. You know, putting yourself out there means being vulnerable, mm -hmm. which suddenly makes you think, you know, should I be putting myself out there? At least yeah. that's what it did for me. Um, and so that's really where it came from for me. You know, who am I to think about, you know, who am I to say that I know how to how to, you know, use content marketing? Who am I to write a book? You know, who am I to be up on stage and that kind of thing? Because it wasn't a place that I was really comfortable with. 
especially if you succeed early in life, now you've got to hit that bar that is so high up over and over again. And I think we all share some friends like, and even people that commented on your, your Facebook feed that you're absolutely right. It's hard to imagine that those people suffer from that. And yet we all do. So, so here's some of those other questions. Am I good enough? Who gave me permission to do this? <laughs> Why should anybody listen to me? Or what if they really knew who I was? Dealing with those questions, what are some of the ways that you contend with those voices? Mm. So I think the way that it manifests for me um, really is, you know, do I have the right to talk about this? Like, do am I enough of a expert? You know, or who is it? Who is an expert? If if you know, if it's not me, then who is it? Um, and so the way that it manifests for me is that um, I'm almost I become almost obsessed with finding out everything I can about something because I feel like if so like when I wrote Everybody Writes, right? I mean, I look I read almost every single book out there about writing, you know, advice about writing, um, some of them written by really famous people like Stephen King. Mm -hmm. And so you can sort of see in that scenario, like, who am I to write about writing? Right. So what I did first is I went through and I read everything that had been written um, about writing. And then I figure out, okay, so given that, like, just let's just assume, though, that I have zero platform. You know, I have there's no reason why I should be able to stick a stake in the ground and say that, you know, I'm going to write a book about writing. Mm -hmm. um, and then I try to spin it in. Well, what is my actual take on it? So I guess in some ways, like I think about the notion of imposter syndrome is actually more of a motivator than anything else, because I ask those hard questions before anybody in my audience ever does. Um, actually, I think on my Facebook post, one of my friends commented on there. It was a quote by Bertrand Russell, I think. She said um, that the trouble with the world is that the stupid are sure and the smart are full of doubt. But I think that's absolutely true. I think that, you know, the, very often, you know, if you don't have some, some spot of it, you know, then you probably, I, I, think, I think as a professional, as a, as a human, as, a, as an empathetic person, you really, I, I just feel like you, most of us do. Angus, the next one we have is one of the gurus of sales and business. He keeps on churning out book after book after book. And that was Brian Tracy. Tell us about that interview. Yeah, well, he like turned from all the business and sales stuff into kind of like a personal development guy. He wrote a couple of books, uh, Earn What You're Worth. He wrote mm. the book, Eat That Frog, uh, No Excuses, a lot of books. I'm talking, I don't know how many, but if I said <laughs> 20, I probably am. I'm not wrong. And yeah. the guy's probably in his late 80s now, and he's still going, still going, still going. Kudos to you, Mr. Brian Tracy. And on the show, he just kind of like one of those things where you just wind him up and watch him go. Like I just asked him, I think I asked him maybe four or five questions on the entire interview. And he was just like, like a machine gun. And he's dropped some bombs. So I'm really excited for you to hear from one of the pioneers in this space, a guy who's been through it all and has some incredible insights. Well, my parents grew up in the Depression, and that shaped people. If not, it scarred them for life. So they always had an obsession with being poor and running out of money. Um, my father immigrated to Canada from England and worked as a farm laborer, and then actually worked his way up and became an assistant professor at the University of Toronto in sculpture. And my mother became a nurse. 
but they were never successful. They still had this poverty mentality. They said it costs too much. We, we can't afford it. Everything is too expensive. You know, and it's very interesting. If you shift forward, you find that rich people have a different mentality than poor people. Rich people uh, look for opportunities to create value everywhere. Poor people just think about how much everything costs and are preoccupied with security. It's a totally different mentality. That's one of the things we cover in the book is all the different ways that rich people think that are different from poor people. Anyway, so we grew up. My father was not always regularly employed. Neither was my mother. Uh, I didn't graduate from high school. I uh, left high school and got a job washing dishes. Now, here's a critical thing I was told, and this happens to everybody, that if you don't get good grades at school, you won't do well at life. If you don't go to college, you will never be a big success. And I bought it. Well, hook, line, and sinker. When, when people are young, they are fed a lot of ideas. Uh, and so they just accept them because they have no barriers, if you like. They have no way to block out these ideas. And many people's entire lives are shaped by uh, negative inputs that they've had early in life, usually from their parents, but often from teachers, siblings, friends, and so on. And one of the things that you and I have found is that everything is beliefs, mm. is that uh, our outer world is a reflection of our beliefs on the inside. If you want to change your outer world, you have to change your beliefs. And most, the most important belief that you can adopt is that you have the ability to be very successful. Mm. It's such a simple belief, and yet it's the difference between successful people and failures. Can you please expound on the difference between short-term and long-term thinking and why this is such a critical component to success? Successful people in every society think long-term. They project forward five years and they say, where would I like to be five years from now? And then we call this back from the future thinking. And then they come back to where they are today and they use what I call the, the, the chemical question. What would have to happen for me to go from where I am today to where I want to be in five years? And then you simply make a list of things. Well, I would need to do more of this and less of this. I need to start doing this and stop doing that. I need to upgrade my skills in this area. For example, all business success is based on good marketing. That means that you design a product or service that people want and need and can use and can pay for, and it's better than anything else in the same field, and then you aggressively tell people about it so that you have a steady stream of people who say, I want that, I want that, I want that. That's the essence of, of successful business. So I say to business people, how many books on marketing have you read? None. How many courses on marketing have you read? None. So how do you expect to be an excellent marketer? I mean, if the marketing is the heartbeat of your business, then how do you expect to be an excellent marketer? Oh, um, instinct, um, intuition, uh, right, right. experience. I said, you know, I was talking, doing an interview yesterday, and we were talking about Zig. Ziegler used to say that, Salespeople without training have skinny kids. And, <laughs> and, 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 and it's the same thing as, as business owners who are not really excellent at marketing and sales, which are two different things, yeah. have skinny kids. And they, and, they, and they worry all the time about money. They wake up and they just worry all the time. I made a decision when I started my career that within seven years, I would never have to do outbound marketing again because my reputation would be so high that business would just simply flow to me from re resales and referrals. Within seven years, I never marketed again. Mm -hmm. I market, but I market in a different way. The very best marketing, by the way, is to offer an excellent product and serve it to your customers really, really well. Mm -hmm. there's, there's 50 years of research in Harvard on this. 
And what they have found over and over again is the companies that are ranked as the highest quality providers to their particular customers, their customer segment, are always the highest profit companies in every industry. And, and, and if I could only say one thing, if I could run on the stage and say to business owners, one thing to be successful, focus on the quality. Make your product really, really excellent quality. So Angus, 80,000 listeners, it has been a wild ride. Yeah, it's kind of humbling to think about. And going back through those different interviews, listening to those voices again and reminiscing, it's, it's, I, I could get really emotional because I was at different places, different spaces in my life when I did those interviews. And not only has this show come so far, but me as a dad, as a husband, as a leader, as a entrepreneur, the level of changes and transformation. And I feel in many ways, I've been a student of these conversations and didn't even realize it. That we need someone outside of ourselves to like almost hold up a mirror and show us things about ourselves that we cannot see. And listening and going through this again has just reminded me of being grateful. Um, what an honor, you know, and we're just getting started. And I want to just challenge you listening at home, in your car, mowing the lawn, doing the dishes, whatever it is that you're doing. Are you taking a moment just to remind yourself, where were you eight years ago, nine years ago? What were you doing? What were you thinking? What were you believing compared to who you are today? And just relish in that moment to be grateful of how far you've come and preparing yourself to what's next. How far will you go in the next eight, nine years from here? Who could you be in 10 years from now if you just show up? If you just take action, if you follow your intuition, because that's what this show has reminded me of right here today. And Tim, I want to thank you for coming up with this idea to do this show and to take this moment yeah. to remember. This has been amazing. Yeah. Angus, the best leaders are always evolving. And even as we've seen this show evolve, our listeners are evolving. We're all stepping in to those next level self. Mm -hmm. So thank you for joining us. See you next time. As we wrap up another episode of Evolve Leadership, thank you so much for taking time to invest in you. If there's to be any sustainable growth in your company or even in your relationships, you must grow first. And it's what I love to do for leaders, to help them grow, to challenge their thinking, sharpen self-awareness, to instill an unshakable confidence, and ultimately upgrade their sense of self. And we do this through our proprietary method called Agile EQ+. Plus where we're leveraging agile leadership and emotional intelligence. We provide our signature training for individuals and for businesses, we've designed a unique curriculum for company-wide learning and development. If you'd like to learn more about our training or to schedule a call, you can simply go to evolveleadership.org. And until next time, stay driven, keep climbing, and never stop evolving. <laughs>